The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 389. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. And right now... If you're at McClanahan Academy, you got great Black Friday deals. I've extended those deals out for everyone, but you got to be on my email list. You either got to be enrolled at McClanahan Academy or you got to be on my email list at brianmcclanahan.com. And you're getting awesome deals 30% off most of the classes, 40% off some of the classes, 50% off a class or two as well. And so you've got some great deals right now. And I'm running those deals up until. Christmas Eve. So if you're looking for a last-minute Christmas gift, they make a great gift. You get a lifetime subscription to the class that you enroll in. So if you enroll in, say, my War for Southern Independence class, you get it for the rest of your life, right? As long as as long as long the site continues to exist and it's not going anywhere, you have a lifetime membership. You can download the audio content, the video files. you got all the PowerPoints, everything, my lecture notes, everything, reading, suggested reading. All of that is yours for the life of of the class. And I mean, that's awesome, right? It's not like you get it for three months and then it's gone. You've got it forever and you can download it. You can play it in your car. You can watch it on your computer, your mobile device. Uh, You've got the lecture notes. I mean, this is me giving you the farm forever, right? So get one of those. If you got a fan of the show, get them a class. Also, you can get my Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool cool stuff. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get your book plate. So if you got one of my books, and I've got a bunch of books out. Newest one is Southern Scribblings. Great book, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. That also makes a great stocking stuffer. Click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, and you can get your book plate, autograph book plate. So if you want my autograph on it, just click on that. And I'll sign it, send it out to you, and then you've got a signed book as well. So lots of great ways to support the show, of course. As always, share it on social media. uh, Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Do whatever you can to spread the message of thinking locally and acting locally. And this is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. And it's a continuation of the last two episodes we've, we've had on this issue of the Texas lawsuit. Because now, as the world turns, we've taken a new turn in the drama in the saga of what's going to happen with this particular scenario. Now, we know that uh, the Electoral College is going to meet today. It is December 14th. They meet today to vote. That doesn't end it, right? Because even if the Electoral College votes, it still has to go to the Senate, and the Senate still has to read. Mike Pence will read the votes, and he can choose to accept all the votes or not. I mean, this is where if the Republicans actually had a backbone They could do something about this. But again, you're wishing on a star in that particular scenario. They never have a backbone. And they won't do anything about it. So you've got the Electoral College meeting, which means that Joe Biden will be, barring any unforeseen circumstances, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. And now you've got 
places like Texas talking about secession. Which is interesting to me because Biden, of course, being born in Pennsylvania, the last time we had a serious discussion about secession, we also had a president from Pennsylvania in office, and that was James Buchanan. So it's interesting. Buchanan was seen as kind of a a moderate. Joe Biden is seen as kind of a moderate. Now I'm going to talk about in the next episode an evaluation of the Trump administration and what Trump did and what Trump didn't do and looking at the Biden administration incoming and what I think that Biden could do one thing, and I'll I'll talk about this in the next episode. I don't want to steal my thunder, but Biden could do one thing, I think, to change the whole course of the United States in a positive way, and he would be a real reconciliationist in that way. He's not going to do it, but if he just did one thing, it would make that happen. But now you've got Texas openly talking about secession again, and I see it. I mean, look, when Rush Limbaugh starts talking about secession, you know that secession in some ways has gone mainstream. And I think you can chalk that up to efforts by the Abbeville Institute, by the Tenth Amendment Center, by other places. Now, Tenth Amendment Center is not worried about secession, but they are talking about decentralization and state powers. But you can chalk that up to some of these things that have been happening since the 1990s. You had a serious discussion about secession in some parts of the United States in the 1990s, and that's been ongoing. You've got a Hawaiian independence movement. You've got Alaskan independence movement. Look, Sarah Palin's, I guess now ex-husband, I think they're divorced. Sarah Palin's husband at the time was a, was an Alaskan independence uh, party member. So uh, that's, I mean, that's interesting. That alone was a ringing endorsement of Sarah Palin's husband. Uh, but you've had the Second Vermont Republic. Uh, that's now kind of you know faded into the background because the man who was behind that died uh, several years ago. You've had several secessionist groups in the South. You've had Texas independence. You've had all kinds of things out there talking about independence, all kinds of groups talking about independence. You've got currently California, CalExit. You've got a group in Oklahoma that's behind. I mean, so you've got all these different groups pushing for decentralization, extreme decentralization in the United States, which would be breaking away from the Union. And I said in the last episode, look, this is folly. If Texas really wants to challenge this, why are you still in the Union? Just leave. Now, this would require, of course, a certain educational attainment in the United States that I don't think we have yet. Most Americans don't understand independence because if you look at the at Twitter, social media, Facebook, wherever you wherever you pay attention, part or even I, I don't even know wherever you pay attention to social media, and you see people talking about secession, you've got some some higher profile quote unquote conservatives now who are mentioning this, but most of them are are too washed with Lincolnian nationalism to seriously consider this. I mean, look, if California left the Union, you'd have Victor Davis Hanson, I think, going to uh, shock with seizures because that is his home state, and that would be neo-Confederate. You look at what's happening when you had the left talking about independence. He kept saying California's neo-Confederate. I mean, this is the problem with these people. They're so stupid. They can't get out of their own way to think, well, you know, this isn't really neo-Confederate. This is exactly what the founding generation did. Why is that considered extreme when the founding generation pulled this off. We revere them, but not the men in 1860-61. We had slaveholders seceding in 1776, but if slaveholders do it again in 1860-61, well, it's bad, then it's good one time, bad the other time. 
Because supposedly you had a group of people fighting against slavery, which a very small faction maybe, but most weren't. In fact, Lincoln wasn't even. So this is the stigma. This is the problem with it all. That self-determination, which is the American principle. Hey, I've got a class on that at McClanahan Academy too. I talk about all kinds of secession movements. Self-determination, which is the American principle, the founding basis of America in the American character is self-determination and fighting for the liberties, whether it's English liberties or American liberties. This is the most important thing the founding generation held higher than anything else, right? But now that's extreme. But I want to talk about this and the value of union. I think Americans are rethinking the value of union. When David French puts out a book on secession, you know something's happening. David French, right? He's got a book out on secession. Maybe I'll review it. We talked about Buckley's book, and there's the Richard Kreitner book, which is a left-winger talking about secession. But let's talk about the value of union and what the founding generation said about it. And I think it's interesting when you get into this. They spent a considerable amount of time in 1787 and 1788 talking about the value of union. The value of union. What does the union actually mean? I mean, this is when Calhoun stands up and says, the union next to our liberty most dear. May we always remember that it can only be preserved by, pres- by distributing the benefits and burdens of the union equally. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. The union next to our liberty most dear. If your liberty is going to be destroyed, what is the value of union? And what kind of union are we talking about? Of course, Calhoun, when he gave that toast at the Jefferson Day banquet, which Jackson, you know, the union, long may it endure, and Calhoun, this is, this is the uh, anecdotal evidence that this existed. But regardless, Calhoun is talking about a union of states. Union of people of the states. I mean, they all recognize the people were sovereign in the states. States, though, are sovereign political entities with the people inside of them, you know, controlling that state. They have powers. They delegated certain powers to the central authority by the act of delegation. This is something that you have to understand. By the act of delegation, it showed who really was the sovereign power in the United States. And those, of course, were the people of the states. As the original preamble said, we the people of the states of. So the term state has political meaning. It carries weight. It's not a county or a shire or a province. It's a state, just as the state of Great Britain. As the Declaration points out in uh, the most important paragraph in the document, I've got a class on that too. On sale right now, by the way. So you've got this idea of a sovereign. The people are sovereign in the state, which is... Sovereign has powers. They delegate certain powers of the central authority. And they had to think about calculating the value of this union. And In fact, in 1787, there was quite a lot of disunion sentiment. There were people talking about, well, let's just get rid of the union. Because the union is going to start abusing power, and this is exactly what we broke away from in 1776. We didn't want it again here. I mean, we're talking about a decade later, just a little over a decade. The war had only been over for about four years through a peace treaty in 1787, and now we're talking about creating another central authority that has the power or the possibility to abuse its power and, of course, render the states impotent. And the arguments made for the Union were rather interesting. Of course, the proponents of the document talked a lot about it. They talked about the the calculated value of Union. What would this do to 
to better American society. And I think this is what Americans are starting to think about now. What is the calculated value of union? You look at how the United States is now developing, and we've got essentially an urban-rural split. Sections don't matter as much anymore, though there still are regional cultures, I mean, without question. But you really have an urban-rural split. And just, I mean, carry this out, take this, you know, when you talk about a Biden administration and what that's going to be, and one of the things, and I'll mention this again in the next show, but we're going to see higher gas prices. For those that live in urban areas, that doesn't matter. Higher gas prices don't matter at all. Why would they? They don't drive anywhere. They take public transportation. They don't see the cost of higher gas prices like someone who lives in the suburbs does or someone who lives in a rural area or truckers. They'll feel it when they get their goods that are more expensive. They'll feel it then. But for the most part, they don't feel those gas prices. So that gas prices could be $9 a gallon and these people wouldn't care. They don't drive anywhere, you see. But people in the rural areas do. And suburbanites, this is interesting, suburbanites, many of them will accept it because they have been so brainwashed with this idea of global warming, anthropocentric global warming, that man is causing these hurricanes and everything to happen. I mean, this is all man's fault. So they're willing to accept it because they think that. I mean, I, I saw this. I had people that I went to school with. After Joe Biden was elected, one person, individual, and uh, one individual in particular, I should say, uh, who said that now that Joe Biden has been elected, their kids are not going to have to worry about uh, you know the Earth warming excessively anymore, because Joe Biden essentially is going to come in and save us. This this individual is not is not an idiot. I mean, but that kind of statement is strange. It's strange. Because there really isn't any evidence that man has done any of these things. When you talk about, for example, hurricanes and how we had so many hurricanes these year, most on record. We only have records for maybe 100 years and really good records for about 50 years. So how do we know in the life cycle of the globe that we haven't had 30 storms plus in the Atlantic Basin in a hurricane season? Chances are it's happened many, many times. The chances of that happening are higher than Joe Biden winning the past election and all the votes that came out right at the end. Right? I mean, higher chances of that. So all these things are hilarious to me, but people are calculating the value union. What does it actually mean for them? What does it mean for Texas? Now, I've mentioned this before. You know, there have been these phrases, you know, Texas is, is showing that it's being hurt by the election. Well, how do you prove that? You've got a sizable number of people in Texas that actually voted for Joe Biden. So how is the state of Texas showing uh, that it's going to be abused by the a Biden administration? Is the Constitution going to be continually violated? Well, of course. Did Trump, though, preserve the Constitution in any way better than Joe Biden does? Well, no. Trump was just as bad as Barack Obama or George W. Bush or anyone else when it comes to executive abuse of power. And Biden's going to be just as bad as any of these others. This is the whole point of nine presidents who screwed up America. So if you're going to make the case that the Constitution is going to be abused, well, then you'd have to say it was not abused by previous administrations, and that simply isn't true. So basically what you're getting to is a, an argument against faction. And this is important. 
Because if you are if you are saying that liberties are being abused by the Biden administration, that Biden is usurping power. Well, I mean, of course he's going to. So would Kamala Harris. In fact, it'd only be worse under Kamala Harris. She's so idiotic uh, that uh, it would be horrible under Kamala Harris. Biden is uh, <laughs> he's bad too, but I think there's still a little bit of, of Biden that. Uh, would hold back on some things. For example, some leak, leaked audio saying defund the police is just ridiculous. I mean, these kind of things that uh, you know most Americans would agree with. And I, I know a lot of libertarians wouldn't, but most Americans would agree with Biden criticizing the defund the police movement. So in that way, Biden is going to be much more in line with mainstream America. I think that he's going to fit that. Kamala Harris does not. So Texas has to prove somehow that there's pain in staying in the union. And if you say that the Constitution is being violated, okay, I mean, look, I can agree with that. Not in the way they were doing it. This, And I, I said this is why the, the lawsuit was stupid. But when you look at what the founding generation said about calculating the value of union, I'm going to go back to one particular essay in defense of the Constitution, and I'm going to use Alexander Hamilton here. I'm going to use Alexander Hamilton because, first of all, Hamilton was a good writer. Now, Hamilton... The real Hamilton did so much damage to the American Union, it's not even funny. It's why I wrote a whole book about it and have a class about that one, too. That one's 50% off, by the way. But the real Hamilton uh, was not what Hamilton was saying here in Federalist Number 9. Now, my next class, which you're going to want, is I'm going to do a four-part series on different documents in support of the Constitution. It's called the Originalist Papers. It's going to be a supplement to my American Constitutions class. And I cover Federalist Number 9 in greater detail in that particular class. But I want to read a section of Federalist Number 9. And I want to read a section of it because of the fact that Hamilton didn't write this. And then I'm going to branch off of something else the individual is saying here, uh, who, who he's talking about, what they said about republics. Because this is important when we start talking about decentralization. And I mentioned it just a minute ago. I alluded to it with the city-rural city split. So a lot of members of the founding generation talked about the Baron de Montesquieu, who wrote extensively about the size of government, size and scale. What kind of governments worked over larger territories? And Montesquieu uh, said that large territories really can't have a singular, or I should say a Republican form of government, unless it's a confederate republic, he called it, or a federal republic. The term confederate and federal are interchangeable. To the founding generation, Confederate meant federal. So when somebody calls you a neo-Confederate, well, you're talking about you favor a federal government. I mean, what does that even mean, a neo-Confederate? It's actually, you know, Patrick Henry was a Confederate. Thomas Jefferson was a Confederate. Even Alexander Hamilton was a Confederate. <laughs> they believed in a federal government. At least this is what they said. George Washington was a Confederate. All these people were Confederates. So this term neo-confederate has no meaning. It's, it's another term that we throw around now that has no meaning. It's just supposed to be a slander and it's just stupid. But 
Montesquieu argued for small republics unless you could do something that he called a confederate republic. So Hamilton quotes Montesquieu extensively. So I'm going to read Montesquieu out of Hamilton's Federalist Number 9. This is what Montesquieu said. It is very probable that mankind would have been obliged at length to live constantly under the government of a single person had they not contrived a kind of constitution that has all the internal advantages of a republican together with the external force of a monarchical government. I mean a confederate republic. Now, let me stop there and talk about this value of union. One of the things the founding generation consistently pointed out was that the union together presented a greater obstacle for force to be used against it. In fact, Hamilton was worried in three straight essays that the problem would be they would be invaded by a foreign power should they separate into smaller societies. There would be fighting between these states, constant fighting between the states, and it would open the door to Great Britain or France or take your pick to come in and, and uh, align with some of these states, and then you would have really nasty situations, and these states would again become colonies. So to the founders, the, the Union presented an obstacle to that and actually maintained their independence. The Union maintained the independence of these states. You can understand that argument in 1787 when you have very small states. I mean, you're talking about a United States in 1790 with 4 million people. Most of the territory didn't have anybody living in it. Any, any um, you know, European Americans living in it had American Indians. But that was a whole other ballgame in and of itself because you had that issue that you had to deal with with foreign powers. But, uh, there, I mean, there are vast tracts of land with hardly anybody there. So it's easy to see, to, to see the fear. The Union presented an obstacle to these states being broken apart and creating all these different factions in uh, in American government or in North America, and you can see how these things were broken apart. Of course, history played this out. For the, for the last hundred years, you had almost constant warfare between the British and the French over control of North America. The English, then the British and the French, over the control of North America. Spain was also involved in this. I mean, it was constant. So the founding generation is looking at history and saying, oh my gosh, if we break apart, if we break this union apart, we're going to see all that again. And now we're fighting each other. So the, the calculated value of union was better to these individuals than the potential for disunion, which would have created a hostile environment, they thought, in North America, which is, I think, the key to understanding union in 1787. But to others... The calculated value of union meant something else. The opponents of the Constitution said, okay, yeah, we can buy that, but what do we have to sacrifice for that? This is why the proponents of the document had to sell it in a way that ensured that the states would still maintain their powers. And Hamilton is using Montesquieu here because he says some things that would give you Reason to believe that the proponents of the document believed in that as well. So let me continue with Montesquieu. This form of government, meaning Confederate Republic, is a convention by which several smaller states agree to become members of a larger one, which they intend to form. It is, kind of, it is a kind of assemblage of societies that constitute a new one, capable of increasing by means of new associations till they arrive to such a degree of power as to be able to provide for the security of the united body. 
it's a kind of assemblage of societies, distinct states that have distinct cultures, political cultures. This is exactly what we had in 1787 in the United States. It's still exactly what we have today. Through these associations and new associations, they can, they can gain a degree of power which will provide the security of the united body. Security. Security. These are people that just fought a war against the British. They're looking for security in 1787 and 1788. Montesquieu says, A republic of this kind, able to withstand an external force, may support itself without any internal corruptions. The form of this society prevents all manner of inconveniences. Now, this is what Montesquieu says. So he's saying that there can't be any internal corruptions in this because the form prevents that. One of the things he says about the form preventing it is in another paragraph, and this goes back to my original subject. He says, Montesquieu says, if a single member should attempt to usurp the supreme authority, a single state, like, I don't know, California, or an individual, he could not be supposed to have an equal authority and credit in all of the Confederate states. Were he to have too great influence over one, this would alarm the rest. Were he to subdue a part, that which would still remain free might oppose him with forces independent of those which he had usurped and overpower him before he could be settled in his usurpation. So Montesquieu is saying this, this kind of confederation would prevent dictators would prevent one state or maybe even a faction of states from controlling the rest because the rest would have the power to oppose him. Should a popular insurrection happen in one of the Confederate states, the others are able to quell it. Should abuses creep into one part, they are reformed by those that remain sound. Interesting. They are reformed. This is one thing I would say about this whole situation with Pennsylvania particularly, but also when you look at mail-in voting and all this stuff. Look, Congress has a role here. I said that if there was ever a lawsuit to be had in this particular situation, it was not Article 2 that they should be looking at, but Article 1, where the Congress gets to have uh, some control over the date of elections. You see... You can't have election month. All this early voting stuff that goes on should be nipped in the bud. Of course, the Democrats won't do it. But if the Republicans, again, had any brains and they were smart, they would have made it to where all this stuff couldn't happen. You have an election day. Early voting is illegal. Unless you have a particular reason why you're not in that state and you get an absentee ballot. You were not in the state at the time, so you vote absentee with a signature and a verification. All the other stuff, I mean, the manner of holding elections, okay. But you have an election day, and you and because of that, you make it illegal for all these other things to happen. All these other things, because you're basically saying that you don't have an election day anymore, you have an election month or two. And that's ridiculous. That's the one way that I think Texas could have had an inroad in this particular situation. Congress already has a legislation. The United States government, the attorney general, should be looking into this. 
not having to rely on some states. But other than that, there's really no control over the elections. And that was made clear in so many of these essays in defense of the Constitution. The opponents of the document said, you're going to interfere with all of our elections. And the proponents said, we won't do it. So original meaning is that the federal government is basically hands-off when it comes to elections. Somebody asked me in social media, does this mean that California can allow illegal aliens to vote? Yeah, they can allow felons to vote. They can allow anybody they want to vote. They can. Now, should they do it? No. But they could. Uh, And this is why you see in some cases, you know, I mean, you have much more uh, uh, open voting practices in some of these states and who can and can't vote. So you want to maintain election integrity, and this is what the founding generation thought would happen. You would maintain election integrity, but you could get a situation where you don't have it. So if that happens, Hamilton has, and Montesquieu, by the way, has a solution. Should abuses creep in in one part, they are reformed by those that remain sound. The state may be destroyed on one side and not on the other. The Confederacy may be dissolved, and the Confederate preserves Confederates preserve their sovereignty. The Confederacy may be dissolved. So in other words, you can dissolve this union. <laughs> Hamilton believed in secession. If you have too many abuses, you can dissolve it, and the Confederates preserve their sovereignty. As this government is composed of small republics and enjoys the internal happiness of each, and with respect to its external situation, is possessed by means of the association of all the advantages of large, large monarchies. So what Hamilton is saying here um, is that, look, you can have, a, you can have a, a confederate republic, a federal republic over a large territory, but the key to all of this was that there was very little power granted to the center and the states retained just about everything else. Very little power was delegated. The states retained most of the powers. Because that was what the founding generation would accept. Hamilton actually said in this essay, the proposed constitution so far from implying an abolition of the state governments makes them constituent parts of the national sovereignty by allowing them a direct representation in the Senate and leaves in their possession certain exclusive and very important portions of sovereign power. This fully corresponds in every rational import of the term with the idea of a federal government. So the value of union is only calculated so far, and Hamilton would say that if there's too much abuse, you leave. You leave the union. Okay, So we need people that actually believe in this. Now, let me get back to what Montesquieu also said. Hamilton is very critical of Montesquieu because if you follow Montesquieu rationally, the ideal republic was about 500 square miles, which is very small. So when you look at states in the United States now, and the state I live has 4 million people in it, that's the same size as the United States in 1790, that could function as its own sovereign country without any problems. It has access to water. It's not landlocked. It has a Republican form of government. Its representative ratio is better than the U.S. government. 
it could function quite well. But within that, of course, you still have factions within the state. And you have urban areas that are not necessarily in line with the wishes of the rest of the state. And you're starting to see this, particularly in places like Georgia, where Atlanta has become such an important part of the state of Georgia that the rest of Georgia is being abused by Atlanta. You see it in New York. I mean, I saw somebody say the other New York is, there's two New Yorks. There's New York City, and then there's the rest of New York. California's got some major urban areas. So you've got some, some things that are interesting with urban areas and then the rest of it. And so how would that function? Well, Montesquieu would say that you, you should even break it down further than that. This is Hume. Hume's ideal republic was so decentralized that no one could ever gain advantage and control the spoils because you would have such decentralization that none of that could ever happen. The whole point of that is preserving the regional cultures in America. You see, the real issue in America today is the culture war. Americans are generally fine with the warfare state. They're generally fine with it. What they don't want is someone telling them how to live. And they don't want to see their liberties abused. So what Americans generally oppose is cultural Marxism, particularly on the right. This is what's happening. They're generally opposing cultural Marxism. And the left doesn't like cultural Marxism either if it's kind of this Lincolnian, American, homogenous, you know, uh, World War II Americanism that was dominant, say, in the 1950s. They don't want that either. They don't like the homogenous culture that they've seen for years, traditional American culture. This is what they're against. They're railing against that. So you've got two one side saying, I don't want to be governed by these crazed leftists, and the other side saying, I don't want to be governed by these right-wing extremists. It's not about uh, anything but culture here. So how do you deal with that? You decentralize even further. You go down to... Uh, in a state itself, you allow for decentralization. And this creates a happier and healthier political environment. Without question, you leave the external part there because that does provide some benefit. Now, if the United States, as the United States has become imperial, that's starting to be questioned whether that there is any benefit to that. When you support the amount of, uh, amount of uh, money that people are throwing at the U.S. military now, and the research and development and other things. I mean, there's, you have to start questioning the value of any of that. But these are the questions that we have to have and we have to answer. And Americans have to think about things differently. It's why they have to think locally and act locally. It's why they have to get involved in the local communities, their local school boards, their local governments. These are the things that they need to be talking about because you control a lot of that. You, I mean, your, your local government controls your trash pickup and your fire protection, your police protection. It controls your water board, I mean, your water resources, your sewage. All these things are local government. Planning, your regional planning, what kind of construction you're going to have. These kind of things that affect your everyday life. Your school board controls what kind of curriculums in your schools. These are things that you control. Now, I know that, well, but then they'll just use the 14th Amendment. They'll say, we can't do this, we can't do that. Well, Last time I checked, courts can't enforce their decisions. I mean, this has to be enforced by the people there, which gets down to the bottom basement of nullification, which is a community saying, we're just not going to follow that, sorry. We're not going to follow it at all. Now, you have to be willing to uh, uh, 
fight against this. And of course, hopefully, I mean, there's no lawsuits, and that creates a whole other situation. But um, the fact is, the local is important. Let me just end with another anecdotal. I had I used to work with an individual from Nigeria, and he was very interested in American government, and he believed firmly in decentralization. He said the problem with America is too big. I mean, he's, you've got too much. You, we've got to decentralize everything. He said the only thing he would say is that the center had to have some type of recognition of civil rights. For him, that was very important. He didn't want people being abused in the local because of civil rights violations. But otherwise, everything needed to be decentralized. He was very interested in, uh, he was a, a Tuskegee man. He loved the idea of small, independent black communities. He liked that. And um, I think that's, in some ways, where America needs to go. Not because it's uh, you know, segregationist or anything like that. Not, not that at all. But it, it helps maintain happiness for people. People like to be around people they like and they know and there's a common culture and there's a common dialogue. They like to be around that. This is what people naturally gravitate to. We try to force all this other stuff and it creates people. This is top-down government. It creates a lot of hostility. It's why Americans are so angry. I did a podcast on this years ago, a couple of years ago. It's why Americans are so angry because of one-size-fits-all government. What solves that? Decentralization and allowing people to live their own lives, in their own way. That's what makes things work. All right. So what is the value of union? This is a question that Americans should be asking every day, and they should be determining that, and, but all the angst and the hand-wringing could be better if we just decentralize in different ways. And uh, I think that's important for the future moving forward. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.